0: All right, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 10. So, if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to go there with me. We're well, we're in the last part of the second section of the book of Hosea. <clears throat> Next week we get to see um, the promised future um, in chapter 11. Then uh, chapters um 12 and 13 we'll have a history lesson, and then chapter 14 another promise for the future. So, we're wrapping up the book of Hosea. If you remember the backdrop for the entire book, what's going on? What's happening with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom? It's all been illustrated by the relationship between Hosea and his wife, who, if we remember, is unfaithful. And he, she left him. Um, and the Lord tells Hosea, after a period of time, to go back, find his wife, pay her debts buy her out of slavery, and bring her home. And the whole point of that story in the first three chapters of Hosea is to establish that this is what God's going to do with Israel. And so we find ourselves in the second section of the book uh, going from uh, chapter 4 all the way through 10, which deals with the sin. What's the iniquity? So basically we're looking at the iniquity of Gomer. So Gomer, remember the unfaithful wife who left Hosea, uh, was a prostitute, cheated on him. Uh, for a time, things were good for her because she could find people that would pay all her bills, take care of her, what have you. And, but eventually, she's all used up. She's in debt. She owes a great sum of money, and she's found herself unwanted by anyone and owned by another man. Then the Lord tells Hosea, go redeem her. And Hosea goes and pays the purchase price to buy her out of slavery and bring her home. So as we look at this section, we're we're talking about that section that correlates the nation of Israel to the backdrop of Gomer. And we're talking about the nation of Israel's sins. For one, the first thing we talked about, chapter 4 and 5, they're ignorant of God. They they didn't really care to know Him. They were indifferent to His Word in chapter 6. They, they didn't really care what His Word said. They were wrapped up in their own iniquity. And that iniquity, which is like a, a fancy word for sin, their iniquity was idolatry, immorality, and insincerity. So... Three eyes, easy to remember, right? Idolatry, immorality, insincerity. So, tonight we're going to look at the insincerity of the nation of Israel, and basically, she is in the place. The nation of Israel is in the place. She has rejected her husband, and her husband, her husband being Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, tonight we're going to look. Let's just look at the first verse quickly, and then I'll I'll, I'll back up in Hosea ten verse 1 it says now israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit but the more the fruit is increased the more altars he built now we're going to talk about that in a minute but this is an example an illustration where israel is described as a vine there was a contemporary of hosea who wrote at the same time of hosea his name is isaiah And he wrote also an illustration of how Israel is a vine. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is what Isaiah wrote. He said, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He watched or he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out A wine vat in it, and he looked to it to yield grapes, but rather it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked to it for yielding grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness... But behold the outcry. So Isaiah who's writing toward the southern kingdom and Hosea who's writing toward the northern kingdom are using the same illustration of Israel as a vineyard. And the problem is the fruit that is coming forth from the vineyard, God's vineyard is not good fruit. Look at how Hosea describes it. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved... He improved his pillars, but their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. So the Lord will break down their altars, destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. um, So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows. Of the field. So basically, the, the phrase he uses here for poisonous weeds would be similar to the idea of hemlock. In fact, you see the same thing in 2 Kings chapter 4. You've heard me talk about 2 Kings chapter 4 before. Elisha, they're building a stew, you know, and the guy finds a wild, noxious plant with gourds on it. He doesn't know what it is. He chops up the gourds and puts it in the stew because if you don't know what a plant is, you should eat it, right? And so when they try to eat it, you remember the exclamation, there's death in the pot. The poisonous weeds have been used, and Elisha gives us the lesson that we could learn. You can't pick the poison out of the stew. What you have to do is pour the meal in, pour the Word of God in, and the Word of God will drive the poison out. So rather than bearing fruit, this vineyard of Israel... It is bearing um, poison. It's, It's not bringing anything. And so the result, Israel has entered into a time of prosperity. Things have been going pretty good, just like things were going pretty good for Gomer for a while. But rather than praising God for it, they praised idols. They built altars. They created high places, which were all areas used for worshiping idols. How did the children of Israel, how were the children of Israel instructed to worship the Lord? In the old, the very beginning of the Old Testament, they would build altars, but then they had a tabernacle, and after the tabernacle they had a temple where they would go to bring their offering before the Lord, right? Here now they're building altars. It signifies those altars are altars built uh, probably at the time to Baal. In fact, I think we'll see that. Discussed as we continue on a little bit further. So because they had these altars and they had a desire to worship the Lord, they weren't cutting God out. They were just mixing Him in. Like, after all, like, we wouldn't mind in our... It's like an open marriage that he's describing. The open marriage is that husband and wife are married, but the wife can go sleep with whoever she wants as long as she comes back home and occasionally sleeps with her husband as well. This, this is what was described in, with Gomer... This is how the attitude of the nation of Israel was. Worshiping other idols, they had a divided heart. They had a divided heart, so they worshiped uh, in in falsehood. They didn't worship in truth. In verse 2, it says their heart is false. It's not true. When we come to worship the Lord, does truth matter? Right? The, The Father is looking for those who will worship Him how? in spirit and in truth, right? So truth makes a difference. We want to worship in truth and we want to worship in the spirit. So we want to come with those two things. So here their heart is false. Their heart is not to the Lord. And so as such, their hearts are divided. And one of the reasons for a divided heart is the rebellion against God. Here's how you get a divided heart. God gives us Commands in in Scripture, right? Well, never mind the ones we we uh, we have a hard time with. We'll just do easy ones, okay? Right? Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Those are easy to understand, comprehend. What's going on? So the Lord gives us those commands. Now, what people do is they find a command that God gives they don't like. I don't really like that command. So. I'm not going to obey that command. So we begin to rebel against God's authority. Here's what you don't understand, uh, or maybe you don't understand that you're doing. You're exchanging the authority of God for your own authority. You're exchanging the authority of what God has said, and you're exchanging that for I'm I'm the expert. So uh, let me tell you what, what really is going on here rather than What God has laid out? What authority do you obey? By what standard are you going to judge what is good and what is evil? What is acceptable to the Lord and what's not acceptable? The way we judge what's acceptable is according to his word. In his word, he tells us that which is acceptable and that which is not acceptable. Now, some of that may require a little more study to comprehend the the whys and wheres and hows uh, of those things, but in the basics, just laying out the basics, when God's people rebel against God's authority, they do whatever's right in their own eyes. You ever read the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did whatever they thought was right. And how'd that work out? Not so good, right? In fact, we read that same thing Here. For now they will say we have no king for we do not fear the lord and a king what could he do for us In other words they're they're complaining about the authority now a lot of people in the world will complain about authority today and and we've discussed a little bit of this in the past and I don't have enough time to get too far derailed uh, off into the into the weeds so to say with it but but people oftentimes want to justify their own authority in terms of what is right and wrong uh, uh, based on, um, you know, rare scripture. They'll they'll go, most often people like to go to the law and they like to go to the part of the law, the, the law divides into three parts, and they go to the part of the law that deals with a ritual cleansing. And they... Go to that part and they say, Well, why don't we do this anymore? Why don't we do that anymore? Um, Because Jesus Christ has become our cleansing. We no longer uh, have to worry about how we sow a field, whether it has two different seeds in it, whether or not we wear two different clothes. All of that was signifying not being divided, being of one heart, one mind in our focus with the Lord. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, He closed the law. Is it still wrong to murder? Did that go away? No. So there's, there's parts of the law that we still, that's called the moral law. And then there is a civic law, which tells us basically we're supposed to love our neighbors. Okay. So we have, so this is how that breaks down. The question is when we come to those things, rather than running off into the weeds, you have to ask yourself, will I follow the authority of God? Does God clearly tell us things that are wrong? Now, we might not like it. We might say, you know, God, I really wish this wasn't wrong. I really would like this to be okay. But the Lord didn't ask us, and what he said is wrong is wrong, so there's no trying to make it right. What did he tell us about the last days? What's it going to look like? Men will give you light for darkness and darkness for light. Right for wrong, wrong for right, right? They're going to... They're going to turn things upside down. That's the same thing that was going on in Israel, and the foundation of it is I'm the authority. Me, I'm the one who will decide right from wrong. I am the ultimate authority rather than the Lord being the ultimate authority in his word, the final arbiter in our decisions. So, you know, one of the goals at Calvary Chapel Buell is that that we try to make the word of God the final arbiter, you know, where... The word of God is clear. We want to be clear. And so we want to to be able to stand on the word of God as the ultimate authority. Now, the nation of Israel wasn't wanting to do that. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Now, you remember we talked about Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon, they changed the name from Bethel to Beth-Avon. Why did they do that? Avon means wicked. Beth means house. The house of wickedness. Instead of the house of God, he's calling this place the house of wickedness. And it works out to also be a a reference to the calf worship that Jeroboam brought into the north. You remember, he didn't want people to go to the temple where they would maybe decide to stay in the southern kingdom. So he put a golden calf in Dan in the north, and he put a golden calf in Ephraim in the south. So that the people, wherever they were, they could get to a golden calf to worship. And he changed the worship of the northern kingdom away from Yahweh to worship idols. So the Lord changed the name. And he calls them, it calls the area the calf, the golden calf of the house of wickedness. Its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests. So everybody is in love with the golden calf. Because the golden calf... Really, lets you do what you want. You get to be the authority, you get to decide right from wrong and what you're going to do. So uh, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethaven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Um, Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king will perish like a twig on the face of the water and the high places, those altars built on the high places of Avon, wickedness, the sin of Israel will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. Now that ought to sound familiar. If you are a student of the word of God, you've heard that phrase before somewhere. It ought to ring a bell. So here's the idea. The idea is Samaria, which is just another word for the northern kingdom. They're going to panic when judgment falls. And judgment, is that my mic? I moved too much. I don't know. Was it my mic? It just went away? It's like magic? Wow. All right. I'll try not to move. I don't know if I can do that. Moving is a requirement. Okay, so is going to panic. Judgment's going to fall. They're going to freak out. They're going to lose their calf. They're going to lose their king. And they're going to run into the, to the uh, caves and ask the earth to cover them up. To cover them up, to fall upon us because of the, this idolatry that's been going on. Now, there's two places in Scripture where we see this phrase, at least two places. One of them's in Luke. Luke chapter 23, verse 28, says, Now, but turning to them, Jesus said, this is Jesus uh, um, walking into Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming When they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs which never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. Now when will Jerusalem say that? About 30 years from the point Jesus spoke it. About 30 years from the time Jesus spoke it, Vespasian will surround Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke specifically, Jesus says, when you see your enemies surrounding you, you need to get out of the city. There are references to the tribulation too, but there is also references to the uh, conquest in 70 AD. And so in 70 AD, the nation of, of Israel is demolished. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple is brought down. And it is an example of the wrath of God and when the wrath of God comes people tend to go into caves and say cover us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb now if you go to revelation chapter 6 it says in revelation 6:15 then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Who's the one seated on a throne? Jesus Christ. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So there are examples in the Old Testament where judgment from God came on a nation where the people... One of the things the prophet said, just like Hosea here, said, when that judgment comes, when Assyria conquers you, this judgment that God was bringing on the northern kingdom, people are going to want to run into the caves and say, cover us from the wrath that God has poured out in judgment. Just like they said in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and just like scripture declares will occur during the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 6. So we see this as part of uh, the the illustration that God has consistently given us through his word. So he's saying to them, look, this judgment's gonna come, and it, this is a judgment because of, uh, ultimately, their idolatry, um, their their insincerity toward God, their immorality in worshiping, these false gods and, and so this judgment would ultimately be poured out. Now in verse 9 we talked about this last time. Why is it important to read your Bible? Because when we read verses like this one, you'll know what he's talking about. From the days of Gebeah you have sinned. We talked about this last time. You guys remember Gibeah is famous in Judges for a horrific event. Judges 19, 20 and 21 tell us that a, uh, a man was traveling through Gebeah with his concubine. The men of the city wanted to have them pass the man out so that they might be able to sleep with him, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather than doing that, he turned over his concubine and they raped her and killed her. He chopped her up in pieces and he sent it out to the 12 tribes. Now you say to yourself, oh my gosh, that's horrible. You're right. God never said it wasn't horrible. He is saying to the northern kingdom now, if you know your Bible, you're just like them. You're like those people the ones you read about and you say, oh my gosh, why? how could anybody do something so horrible? For sure, that's exactly how we feel. And here's the Lord saying to them, from the days of Gebeah you have sinned, O Israel, that there they have continued. So the Lord is saying it didn't stop. That That attitude, that sinfulness, that iniquity, that idolatry, that immorality, that was still going on. The Bible teaches us, that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is what? Long-suffering, desiring what? That no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So we see here the same thing, the Lord's long-suffering as he looks at the sin of the people. But if we've been reading our Bibles and we know the stories of the Old Testament, when we hear the reference, we go, oh, I remember that story. Yeah, because I got a lot of emails about that story when we got there. So I always know when we get into a, a good something something that brings up a lot of conversation because I get a lot of questions about, hey, what in the world? How could this happen? So listen to what they say. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? Is God wrong to judge them? Was God, is God wrong to judge Gibeah for what they did? No, we, see, the, the Bible, in, in Hebrew, one of the ways that poetry works is this idea of a comparison by contrast. So you look at Gebeah, he says, now, you guys would not feel bad if I, as God, judged Gebeah. And everybody's like, no, what they did is horrible. And the Lord says, well, you've done the same thing. See, this is, the, this is what the prophet is laying out to them. Shall I not? Shall I not bring... Uh, A war against the unjust shall I not bring judgment verse 10 when I please I will discipline them and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity so he holds the double iniquity is the iniquity that goes all the way back to judges when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own mind and the iniquity that they had this day the Lord is saying you guys are guilty of double iniquity You, you haven't stopped. There hasn't been a a transformation of, of lives. We've continued on the same road, and you're coming to the end of that part of the journey. And so the Lord is saying, I will bring nations. I'll discipline you, and I'll bring nations, and those nations are going to put you in exile. You're going to lose your freedom, and I'm going to throw you out of my land, because who does the land belong to? Whose vineyard is it? It's God's vineyard, right? Who planted it? The Lord did. Does he get to do with his vineyard as he sees fit? That's, that's the whole point of the illustration, right? The Lord can do uh, as he sees fit in it. Now, there's always, with the prophetic, there's always a call to, uh, to repent and always a call to come to the Lord. But the Lord oftentimes, when he's talking to his people at their most rebellious stages, he says, but it's not going to do any good. I'm sure the day that Gomer left Hosea, Hosea pleaded with her not to go. But it didn't do any good. She still left. Just like the nation of Israel, in their unfaithfulness to God, God will plead with them, repent, don't do this, don't do this thing, but they're going to do it. Right? They're going to... They're going to make make the choice to continue in their rebellion. Look at verse 11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. He's describing them uh, as a calf that he took care of that the Lord took care of. We talked about last time, Ezekiel 16, one of my favorite sections, but you have to say the word whore over and over again so we don't often read it. Ezekiel 16 talks about the Lord finding a baby thrown away in a field and him taking care of the baby and helping the baby grow, being the sustainer of the baby, making her beautiful, um, ultimately uh, wedding her to himself to be a faithful bride, to the lord god all of these things this picture here in hosea the lord uses the same idea but it's with a calf so she was a calf and she loved to work she loved to thresh she loved to be in the field so i spared her for her fair neck he he didn't put her in the yoke he didn't he didn't put her to hard labor but he says but i will put ephraim to the yoke judah must plow Just as the northern kingdom's going to go into exile with Assyria, the southern will go into exile in Babylon. So we see these things are going to take place. Jacob, which is often a term the Lord uses when Israel's in rebellion against him, uh, Jacob must harrow. He must work. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap chesed said, that's God's steadfast love, his faithful love. So righteousness, reap my faithful love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. He's, he's, not, he's not under no uh, concept or idea that they're going to churn up their own righteousness. But he's saying, seek me look to me come to me and i'll rain righteousness on you the same thing paul writes in romans chapter five that the love of god is poured out in our heart by the holy spirit god pours out the things we need in our lives uh, by the holy spirit righteousness is poured out from god the bible tells in isaiah our righteousness is as filthy rags right everybody remembers so my righteousness is not going to get it done right I need his righteousness. It's still the same story that Jesus told. Tax collector beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's the one, Jesus says, who leaves justified. So he says, it's time to seek the Lord that I might rain righteousness on you. Is God saying, you don't have to go this way. You don't have to leave. And it's the unfaithful wife saying, Uh, I'm leaving. So their independence from God, their rebellion leaving to a declaration of independence is ultimately going to result in judgment. Look at verse 13. So you have plowed iniquity. So still talking about the calf, right? I I didn't put a yoke on you. When I put a yoke on you, all you want to plow is iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own ways. Who's the ultimate authority? It's not the Lord. Who's the ultimate authority? It's self. Anytime self is the ultimate authority, we're not that smart, guys. I'm sorry. We are not that smart. That's why the Lord has given us his word. Right? So we we want to we want to hold fast. To his word, not eating the fruit of lies, but trusting in the word that God has given. But instead, that you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. You trust in your army. You 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 think about how mighty you are, how strong you are. You could never fall. I remember a time when that used to be the way we would talk in the U.S. Uh, I don't think too many people are talking that way anymore. Things have changed in verse 14. He says, therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. And mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. So again, the Lord looking back on the horrific events that have taken place in the past and saying, these are the kind of things that are going to happen again. Because the Bible tells us a story of two roads. A path that leads to life. And a path that leads to destruction. And the concept of the story is to recognize the path that you're on. And if you do the things that, were, that are being described in Hosea, you... You have a, a, an unfaithful heart to God. You are, you are not, there's no sincerity in your relationship with him. You are mixing in a bunch of other things, you know, with the, with the concept of trusting Christ. There's no reason to assume you're okay. That's what they did. That was the road to destruction. What is the road to life? Well, in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom bid us come follow me. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus said, come follow me. In the epistles, Paul would write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me. Let's walk this path. This is the path that leads to life. This is the way that we want to walk, that we want to go. Verse 15, he says, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Now the point this being said is that when the battle begins, when Assyria marches down, it's not going to take long. The king's going to drop the first morning. So Judah is going to face a longer um, siege they're going to be conquered Judah's harder of learning is that the right way to say it so they're going to be conquered three times by the same person but Assyria they're going to clean house in one, one fell swoop in Israel so just like Gomer what's the point just like Gomer they're going to be slaves that nobody cares a lot about in a land that's not their home. And the point of the story of Hosea is God is the one who can redeem them from that place. He still, this is the miracle, he still wants you back. Pretty thankful for that. That God still wants us back. So the hope that is provided, we'll see much more of that next week. Been a lot of judgment, 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 judgment. Next week, you get to see a little bit of the frosting on the cake before we get into some more judgment. And then a little more frosting again. So we're going to end on frosting, I promise. But keep in mind the picture, right? Why is he describing all these things? Because he wants you to understand what it was like for Gomer when she was a slave and nobody wanted her anymore how bad her life was when Hosea came to get her. It's the same for Israel, how bad her life was when God comes to get her. And so that's the story of of Hosea. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we're... Able to study your word, open your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to to know you more. God, the, the charge that you brought against the northern kingdom is that they don't know you. That they didn't want to know you. That they were insincere about wanting to know you. That they played games with with the worship of God, they worshiped in falsehood. Their hearts were not for him. Their hearts were false. There's, there's so many applications that we can look at in the book of Hosea. God, I pray that we would be men and women who learn the lessons of those who have gone before us and struggled and failed. And that we would see the, the importance of the illustration Lord, your word declares that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That we can't save ourselves by our own righteousness or works of righteousness or any other thing that we might do, but rather, Lord, that we beat our breasts and we come before you and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. For everyone who confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart. will be saved. God, we thank you for the promise that you brought. That you're not, you're not casting your people off. You're not throwing them away. You made a way. Messiah came. And we enter in now to a time as the church goes forward with the gospel. Um, going out to the highways and the byways. Making invitations. Come to the wedding feast. The wedding feast of the, of the bride of Christ and, and her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to come, you have to put on his robe. You can't get in without a wedding garment. Well, the wedding garments are right outside. All you have to do is pick one up for Jesus Christ has provided Lord, I just pray that we would recognize all the illustrations your word declares to us, that we would be clothed in the righteousness of he who knew no sin, who became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. That I know it's time to seek the Lord, that he would rain righteousness upon me. Lord God, we thank you for your truth. And for what your word declares, and I pray, Lord, we would be men and women who desire to know you more. That we would be Bereans, receive the word with all readiness and study the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. And God, we pray you be glorified in and through it all as we lay it before you in Jesus' name. Amen.